captain's logs. Han Solo. I'm Captain of the Millennium Falcon. This is Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the Federation Starship Enterprise. Listening to Captain's Logs and Lightsabers, part of the Geek News Now podcast network. Welcome to episode six of Captain's Logs and Lightsabers. Chris and I are back this week with our regular format after our wonderful interview that we had with Landry Walker last time. If this is your first time tuning into our regular show, I'm going to go over the format very quickly with you. First of all, Chris and I have a brief discussion of any notable news stories that came out of both Star Trek and Star Wars from the past couple weeks, and then we have a featured discussion. This week's featured discussion was a bit of a daunting task. Chris and I were talking uh, a couple episodes ago about the influence of Star Wars on Star Trek in the 1970s, and uh, as a follow-up to that discussion... Chris and I are going to attempt to compare apples with oranges. We both watched Star Trek The Motion Picture and Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. We're going to look for the similarities and differences between the two. But as he is with me each and every episode, I want you to welcome my excellent co-host, Chris. How have you been since we last chatted, Chris? I've been doing great, Jonathan. It's good to be here with you again. I've been really excited about this topic um, being kind of the sequel to what we did in our last regular episode. Uh, it's going to be very fun and very interesting comparing these two movies because it was not easy. <laughs> no way. Uh, right. Yeah, you are absolutely right about that. So, yeah, we're going to give it our best effort, and uh, we hope you guys like what we came up with. Absolutely. Uh, but first of all, we're going to talk about the news. Move the ship out of the asteroid field so that we can send a clear transmission. Captain, incoming message. Come closer, I have good news. Starting on the news here, our first news topic today is a brief follow-up to a story we covered a few episodes ago about the forthcoming documentary about Star Trek Voyager from the team behind the incredible Deep Space Nine doc, uh, 455 Films. The, The filmmakers launched a crowdfunding campaign and have not only met their initial goal of $150,000, but they've far exceeded it. Can you believe that, Jonathan? I owe more than $150,000. Yeah, that's absolutely incredible. I mean, to set a goal of 150000 and now the amount of funding that they've received is almost $825,000. That's, what, almost 600 times what they had initially set out for? Or yeah, six, it's, sorry, it's incredible. Not 600 times, sorry, 600% of what they set out for. So because of these stretch goals that they've reached, the documentary will be at least 90 minutes instead of 60 minutes. And then the documentary will have a custom soundtrack composed for it, as well as feature the uh, the Voyager theme song that Jer- Jerry Goldsmith had composed back in its original run. Uh, they'll also feature more interviews from cast, crew, and others. And then here's my favorite stretch goal. If, uh, if they're able to get from the 825 up to $900,000 in funding, they're going to be remastering all of the footage they plan to show as part of the documentary in, in high definition. Uh, so they'll be able to take the, the standard definition masters of the Star Trek Voyager episodes that currently exist on streaming networks and remaster those scenes uh, in, in HD. Only the scenes that they're planning to use. They're not going to remaster the whole series because that would cost a heck of a lot more than and what they raised. It sure would. <laughs> Man. But I'm I'm really excited about that. What do you think? Oh, I'm I'm completely excited about it. Stoked. I think Voyager deserves to have this documentary about it. Those those cast members put in a lot of hard work during those seven years. They came up with an incredible series that really still stands the test of time up to this day. It'll be nice to see what the uh cast is currently up to and what some of their recollections are. What you're saying about the HD footage is really exciting because I did go to see what we left behind, the Deep Space Nine documentary, in theaters when they had that limited run. And they did remaster some footage from Deep Space Nine in HD, and it was incredible, just just stunning. And so if they're able to do with the Voyager HD what they did with the Deep Space Nine HD, we're in for a real treat. I think it's going to be worth it. And... It's just going to be incredible. I just wish I had the money now to help contribute to the uh, the project. I don't have any money right now to send and, and to contribute, but to everybody who did, 
thank goodness for all those fans because we got something really great coming. I agree, and I'm I'm so happy that the fans you know have spoken and and they've made their desire for this documentary known, uh, and, and that they're acknowledging that with their with their donations, which is absolutely incredible. I can't wait. Yeah, it's going to be wonderful. So, also in a bit of Star Trek and Star Wars inspired real world news, a research paper that was published recently in Science Journal Classical and Quantum Gravity. Physicist Eric Lentz proposed a potential blueprint for superluminal travel, which is essentially faster than the speed of light. Currently, the blueprint requires a massive amount of energy to, to make superluminal travel possible. So the engineering challenge is finding a way to re- reduce it for practical use. This is a really interesting story, um, it, just to see the possibility of any kind of warp drive coming in in our lifetime. Jonathan, what did you think of the article? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's just it's just absolutely incredible. I, you know, as a fan of Star Trek and Star Wars, you know, I have never, ever expected that we would see anything beyond, you know, theoretical uh, applications of, of faster than light travel or warp speed. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's just... You know, to to know that there's still a possibility that while you and I are are alive, you know, that a warp engine or or superluminal engine can be a reality, and that physicist has found a way to essentially to beat Einstein's constant, which you know, for years and years, physicists thought that you know that faster than light travel wasn't possible because. Mm-hmm. Of Einstein's constant. This is absolutely amazing. And yes, and it's it kind of interesting that you know, as of now, we're almost exactly 42 years away from Star Trek's first contact day. And, and that, you know, that really there might be a possibility of such a thing happening by then. Yeah. Um, I, I remember our conversation last episode with Landry, how, you know, he said that Star Trek has always been about our society, our world just in the future and the fact that you know that this is possible now uh, it's just, yeah it's mind-blowing yeah it's amazing how fast technology from nowadays is just catching up to what star trek created i mean we're we're past stuff the original series actually was showing and even like with the next generation at this point it's just it's just unreal how much that tech has become the norm in today's society you know, with medical scanners and, and view screens. And, you know, now we can Skype and talk over the computer screens, like, like with the uh, view screens, mm-hmm. you know, the, the cell phones or our communicators. It's just, it's just amazing how much that has been predicted. Too bad we don't have anything like lightsabers yet. That would be really cool. You know, that would be, that would, now that would be interesting to see there and see how that would get used in today's society, you know, but uh, it's great. And I think, I do believe, I think it's wonderful. I'd love to see us go to the next star within our lifetime. That would be great. Alpha Centauri something. Yeah, I just, I, I, it's, you know, you mentioned cell phones, you mentioned medical tricorders, you mentioned view screens, you know, Mm -hmm. know, how we, you know, how we uh, have meetings with each other across the internet on Zoom. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's, who would have thought that, that the, the practicality of faster than light travel could actually be seen in the next 50 years. I know. You know, I mean, even if you kind of think about it, this is kind of a side note, but in uh, the first season finale of Next Generation, The Neutral Zone, Data had told the, uh, the survivors from the 20th century that television didn't live beyond the year 2040. And I've always thought to myself, man, that is kind of weird. Why would it go so quickly? But here we are in 2021, and streaming is starting to take the place of regular television. So that that prediction might actually come true. Yeah, uh, with technology. I know it's it's wow. <laughs> I know, I know. It's hard to believe. It's hard to believe. But hey, maybe Star Trek has the power to predict certain future things, like The Simpsons. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe. How do we follow up that news story? Well, how about talking about a new Star Trek TV series? All so, right. as everybody knows, Star Trek Prodigy is the animated Star Trek series that is supposed to do, or I should say was, supposed to debut on Nickelodeon. But we just got some news within the last few weeks that actually it's going to be airing first on Paramount+. Plus. So it's going to air its, I believe it's 10-episode first season. 
And uh, after it, it finishes its season on Paramount Plus, then it's going to be aired on Nickelodeon at that time. Also, we got a promotional image from that show uh, that shows, the, the, I guess it's six main characters. So before we start talking about the characters, uh, what do you think about the news about it going on to Paramount Plus first, Jonathan? I think it's a smart decision because, you know, Paramount Plus, it's trying to establish itself as another streaming service that deserves your money. Yeah, you know, CBS All Access was there, but we kind of had talked in a a previous episode about how, you know, this rebranding to Paramount Plus, they really need to double down on exclusive content. And if they really want to try to gain some market share, uh, you know, in the ever uh, vast sea of streaming services, you know, uh, uh, competing for your attention, they have to do something that's going to set them apart. And, uh, you know, taking a show that was supposed to debut on cable, uh, you know, and and moving it to their streaming service seems like the smart move. Um, I know I had mentioned that, you know, an even smarter move would be to take all of the Star Trek content that you can find on other uh, streaming services like Netflix and Amazon Prime and even Hulu, I think, uh, and, and removing them from those services and putting them exclusively on Paramount Plus, that would be the way to go if you really wanted to create the the killer streaming service and, and really you know double down as the exclusive home of Star Trek. I think this is a step in that direction. I agree with you 100%. I think they need to keep the content in-house, and they just need to keep it all together. After all, they're now calling it the Star Trek universe as one big lump sum uh, instead of it just being the Star Trek franchise. So why have it jumping from one place to another if you can just keep it all under one roof in-house? It it makes perfect sense, and it gives people a chance to want to come back and sample other things without having to kind of look around and hunt things down. Um, so I think you're right. It's going to be a very, it's a good idea. It, it just makes from a business standpoint and just from a logical standpoint, it completely makes sense. So there was also an image that was released of the, I guess you want to call it the cast. Uh, looks like we're going to have six main characters that are going to be on this. So I was very surprised by seeing this picture when I first saw it. It doesn't look like we've got any human characters. Now, we do know that there's Captain Janeway or Admiral Janeway, whatever she's going to be in this show, is going to be there. So there's your human condition piece right there. Mm -hmm. But it's very interesting that the six main characters, the characters that people want children to relate to and bond with, are not human. So if we take a look at this picture, we've got two uh, looks like younger female characters. One definitely has some sort of purple skin, kind of some sort of extra large mohawk, maybe. (laughs) I don't know how to describe that. Then there's another girl standing right next to her. Can't really tell exactly what color her face is. Is it like a whitish green to some degree? Um, And then you've got some geode-looking character. Looks like like some sort of rock thing that's waving at the camera. Then we got some sort of gelatinous blob with a big smiley face on it. Then we have what fans are debating as is it either an overweight Tellarite or an overweight Talaxia. And then you have a robot character, which is got one big eye, it looks like, and it's waving. So my first reaction when I saw this photo was, my goodness, this looks like Star Wars Rebels. Not in terms of the storyline, but except, I mean, you do have a ragtag group of heroes here, like you have in Star Wars Rebels. The two characters in the middle actually remind me of Harrison Dula and Sabine Wren. Not because of the way they're dressed, but they, just because you got two strong female leads in, in the core cast. I don't know if you notice this, too, if you're looking at the picture right now or not, but I, that beam of light, there's like a, straight, a mm-hmm. beam of light that looks like a lightsaber between the two of them. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. It's just the way it looks to me. You know, yeah. it's just the way that they're dressed, too, with the, like the belts and the, the boots, the utility kind of stuff. It just feels very right out of Imperial era Star Wars. 
Uh, let's see, what else do we have here? Well, look, before I move on, what do you think about those first two characters? I think you've kind of nailed the uh, the promotional image. It does feel very, very much like Star Wars. You've got you know two female characters, like you said, very much like Hera and, and Sabine. You've got a droid, you know, a, a robot or droid type character in uh, in the promotional image that mm-hmm. is not, of course, doesn't look anything like an astromech droid, especially mm-hmm. anything like Chopper. Clearly, the inspiration is there. You know, the uh, the character that's uh, that looks like a rock formation that's waving at the camera. Um, <laughs> you know, kind of, I kind of see him as the muscle. You know, very mm-hmm. much like Zeb is yes. in Rebels. And as far as the gelatinous character and then the overweight short character, I I don't know what to make of those because I don't see Mm -hmm. where those are inspired by anything directly out of Star Wars Rebels. But sure, it's it's yeah again it's it's a like you said it's a ragtag bunch. I think uh, I think you've hit the nail right on the head there, Chris, with the comparisons. And hopefully, Mm -hmm. hopefully, it still feels like Star Trek while bringing a little bit more fun and levity to the Star Trek universe, like what uh, Star Wars does with its animated projects. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, you and I were talking before show about the human characters. The big thing about Star Trek is talking about the human condition. And this show has no alien or no humans in it, in the, in at least the core cast, unless you want to count Janeway, you know, but We've had Star Trek in the past that has talked about the human condition through its alien characters. You know, we learned about what it means to be human through Spock, trying to learn what it's about to be human. Uh, We've learned about trying to become human, what that's like through Data, through Odo, through the Doctor on Voyager. Um, On Enterprise, I'm not really sure who. Uh, Maybe through Dr. Phlox, because he just had a zest for life and just enjoyed life on Earth. The other thing that I heard... From that some people were complaining about online is for that rock formation creature. How can you have some sort of rock that that's kind of alive? But really, there were rock creatures in Star Trek that actually were alive. If you go back to the third season episode, The Savage Curtain, when they were at the planet Excalbia, Yarnak was uh, the Excalbian was actually a rock formation creature, and they lived in like like a molten molten kind of planet until they created that Earth-like environment for the episode for their, those games that they had between Kirk and Lincoln and all of those. And also, I don't know how much you know about Star Trek V, the Final Frontier's history, but they were supposed to have rock men in that, ep- in that movie mm-hmm. as well. Um, they only had one rock suit that they were able to budget, and it looked so silly, according to William Shatner, that they basically nixed that. And... Uh, so you can see it in the uh, special features of the DVD, but it would, and it would have really been cool. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they have the whole thing about Star Trek is there's a whole bunch of different kind of life out there. So I think I think I think this is going to be really neat showing that. I don't even know what to think about the gelatinous blob, but something tells me he's going to be the breakout character of the series. Yeah. Uh, do you watch Do you watch the Orville at all, Chris? Oh yes, okay. very much so. It kind of reminds me of Yafit. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. And you know what? The internet was ringing about that too. You know, so people were using it as a way to say that it's copying off the Orville. I don't know. I, I just think it's neat that we have a little cute creature that people are going to to uh, buy. Guaranteed, they're probably going to have a stuffed animal that's similar to Grogu from oh, yeah. Mandalorian, and they'll probably have this new, this character like some sort of slime creature in a jar. Don't be surprised. And and for better or worse, I'm sure that this character is not going to be voiced by Norm MacDonald. Take that how you will. Please. <laughs> Please don't. That's great. <laughs> Have one character by Norm MacDonald. That, that's perfectly fine. But create something special and unique for this one. Right. Absolutely. So, yeah, that it, it's uh, I'm, I'm kind of excited for the show. And if it, mm. you know, if it is Star Trek's answer to Star Wars Rebels, I mean, Star Wars animation has always been about you know being kid friendly but still having amazing lessons to teach adults and and again mm-hmm. that's also something that star trek you know ha- has mm-hmm. has accomplished you know in in all of its live action is you know uh, tales of the human condition and and how to you know make us a better race of of people i guess the last bit of news that we have is also recently announced that 
the uh, that the History Channel was going to be releasing a new documentary as well. Uh, it's going to be called The Center Seat, 55 Years of Star Trek. It's going to be an eight-episode limited docuseries, uh, and it's going to be produced by the Nacelle Company, uh, which is a company uh, created and directed by Brian Volkweiss. Uh, if, and I know we had talked on a previous episode, I had mentioned to you about a show called The Toys That Made Us on Netflix. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brian Volkweiss is the creator of The Toys That Made Us. So uh, he's going to also you know, be behind this eight-episode docuseries. And once I read that, I got really excited because The Toys That Made Us is is funny, uh, it, it's it's nostalgic, and it really you know pays a lot of uh, attention and, and gives a, a lot of tribute to all of these toy franchises that, that we would have grown up with. And, and the fact that it's going to be the same creator as that show, this, this History Channel docuseries is going to be uh, incredible, I think. Oh, absolutely. This is going to be incredible. You can never go wrong with a Star Trek documentary. Uh, And you know what really excited me about this? You were talking about Brian Volkweiss. In his original, I guess, letter or or interview from Deadline, he actually gave a quote. And I have it here. It says, quote, Star Trek, from before I was 10 years old, gave me the closest thing I have to a code to follow in my life. If it wasn't for the words, I don't believe in the no-win scenario, I'd be very alone, broke, and miserable in this world. So to say this is a passion project would be a tremendous understatement, end quote. So this it's just it makes it even more exciting for me. You've got somebody who's a big Star Trek fan, this has been a big part of his life, and he's actually going to be producing this. So you know it's going to be a labor of love that comes from it. Um, what else also excited me about, and you know from our last episode that we did about the 70s, the era of Star Trek and Star Wars, they're going to actually be talking a lot about that era, which I'm super stoked about. Uh, he specifically said in the Deadline report that they're going to talk about the lesser-known areas of Star Trek's history, including the animated series and Phase 2. Now, the Phase 2 part is what I'm really excited about, because I've always had a fascination with that never-created TV show, which is probably why I love the, partly why I love the motion picture so much. So he also talked about, he's going to talk a little bit about Lucille Ball, actually, and how she was, she helped in the creation of Star Trek back in the 60s. So we're going to see some pretty neat stuff. It's not just going to be a retread of everything that's come before and other documentaries that have been created. The one thing that I'm nervous about, and this is just a little minor nitpick. I don't know if you watched the 50-year documentary that history created five years ago. Did you see that? I did not, no. You did not. Okay, well, I, I bought it on DVD. And one thing that was driving me nuts throughout most of it is they must not have done a really good job with the audio recording because when they had the people being interviewed, they were playing the music in the background. The background music is almost as loud as the audio of the people talking Mm. and it almost overshadows it. And it's just, it's hard to kind of like balance the two. At least that was for me. You know, maybe I'm just getting old at 40 years old and my hearing's starting to change, but it just, it drove me nuts. So I'm hoping that they have a, a better balance with that this time. Yeah, audio engineering with that kind of stuff is key. I mean, you got to make sure that your levels are appropriate. You never want your background music to drown out the primary source of the content, whether that's an interview, whether that's a narration, anything like that. You, you got to find that balance. And, you know, you you as the audience member should be able to hear both the background music track and the primary track, mm-hmm. but it should never be a competition for which one is getting your attention. Yeah. It, it's distracting. It's, and, it's, and it wasn't, I watched for most of that documentary. I was just like, it was driving me nuts. You know, if you get a chance to watch it, watch it and, and, and see, you'll hear, you'll see what I'm saying. All right. Sounds good. So I believe that's all the news stories that we have to cover. It was very Excellent. Star Trek heavy this week, but sure uh, was. you know, there just wasn't a whole lot of notable news out of Star Wars this week, or the, rather in these past couple weeks. So um, Star Trek wins the uh, the internet for news stories, for sure, since our last episode. Excellent. Way to go, Star Trek. Woo! <laughs> Don't get technical with me. Logic is the beginning of wisdom, Polaris, not the end. The Jedi uses the Force for knowledge and events.
All right. I think it's about time that we move on to our feature discussion for the week. And as I kind of teased at the very beginning during the intro, uh, we kind of took on uh, a very difficult task, uh, kind of as a follow-up to our episode of Star Trek and Star Wars in the 70s and the influence that Star Wars had on Star Trek, uh, Chris and I came up with the hopefully brilliant idea to try and compare and contrast Star Trek the motion picture with Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. So, mm-hmm. uh, and, and as you kind of find out as we you know, carry out our discussion, it was not easy finding similarities because the two films are just so drastically different from one another. Star Wars is a space fantasy. It's a serialized story, uh, and especially Star Wars Episode Four: New Hope, you know, we're coming in in the middle of the story uh, rather than, you know, you know, there are parts before it and parts that take place after episode four, where Star Trek, the motion picture is its own self-contained story, but we're going to do our best to try and compare the two and we'll see where the conversation takes us. So Chris, what, um, how did you want to tackle this? Well, I was, I, what I did was, is I created 10 similarities, uh, between a new hope and the motion picture. Now, like you said, this was a very difficult, task. It sounded very easy when we first said it two or three weeks ago, you know, but you're right. They are so drastically different in terms of speed and pacing and style and story and character. So I let's hopefully I came up with some pretty good uh, commonalities here. So the first one that I noticed that was the similarity was both movies open up with space battles. Now, one of them is obviously very iconic and probably one of the most iconic opening scenes in all cinematic history. When you have, first of all, you have the opening to Star Wars with that amazing fanfare, and then it it goes right down and scrolls down to Tatooine, and then you see these ships coming across the screen, firing at each other. It's just with intense music going on. It's just very action-packed, and really what it does, it sets the theme for what's coming in the story. You know, it kind of reminded me back of when I was in college, and when I used to write research papers and I would come in with a very with a very boring sentence. And I remember professors telling me, no, you gotta find a way to catch them from the beginning. So what I did was with my research papers is I was all, I would always start them with exclamations. And that's kind of what dragged everybody into the rest of the paper. And I think that's what they did with Star Wars. They just drew them with the first scene. And it just kind of let you know exactly what was coming. Now the motion picture also opens up with a space battle, but nowhere to the degree of the one in A New Hope. So it shows the three Klingon vessels approaching V'ger, but it's more like a silent kind of like introduction to the special effects of the movie, <laughs> really. And then, it, but even though, yes, it does set up what is coming toward Earth. Um, so it was a slower battle from the Klingons. Really, the one Klingon vessel fired three photon torpedoes at V'ger. And basically, Vidra just fired them back and digitized the three ships, you know. But it did it. That's what both opening battles did was it set up the drama that was going to be coming in the movies, what we were to be expecting. Um, so, what are, what are your thoughts on that? That those battles? Yeah. So I, I I kind of one of the things that I noticed right away uh, is as far as the similarity, uh, you know, Star Wars: A New Hope starts with the Star Destroyer, um, come, you know, traveling away from us, and we see just the scope and the depth and the size of this vessel. The shot composition in uh, in Star Trek: The Motion Picture was very similar. We get that nice close up of the Birds of Prey, and we see how detailed the model work was on the Birds of Prey. Uh, it, it very much reminded me of the model work in of the ships and, and vessels mm-hmm. that we see in Star Wars as well. Um, it's very, you know, the, the level of detail was just absolutely incredible. Uh, and, and then, you know, you had said about how we get the, the, in Star Wars A New Hope, we get that opening fanfare from John Williams and how, you know, essentially that opening fanfare becomes the standard for Star Wars movies going forward. Jerry Goldsmith's composed theme for Star Trek, the motion picture also becomes the gold standard for Star Trek projects. I mean, we hear it in how many, you know, we hear it in every single episode of uh, of uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. And that, that theme has now become synonymous with 
Star Trek. It sure has. Yes. And that's actually, we're going to be coming back to that in our, the discussions of the similarities with the new hope and the motion picture. Cause that, that is, you hit the nail right on the head with that. Absolutely. Yeah. That moves on to another similarity I found between the two movies is that both movies have heroes that are dealing to stop a deadly force. Now, at first, when I was doing some, I was thinking about this plan. I wasn't sure exactly how the two really compared, but they they actually are very similar if you think about it. So, in A New Hope, yes, they're not. It's not just one planet that's being threatened. You got the whole galaxy that the Death Star is is threatening to destroy if people don't fall into line with the Empire. Where V'ger, it was on a direct course toward Earth. So Earth itself was the one that was in danger. But, yes, A New Hope showed the destruction of Alderaan and almost destroys the base on Yavin. But really, if you think about it, V'ger itself also was threatening the rest of the galaxy as well. Because on its way to Earth, as you see when Spock goes through the flyby or fly-through of V'ger itself, He's dig- V'ger has digitized a lot of different things and saved it into its data bank that he goes flying through. So a lot of different things have been destroyed or deleted based on V'ger's journey. Heck, they even, even Epsilon 9 was destroyed in that. So it wasn't just Earth itself. It was a whole bunch of different things that got threatened. And that's very similar to what is going on in, in A New Hope with the Death Star, in my opinion. You've got a, a galaxy-wide threat. That ends up being destroyed at the end. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's uh, you know that comparison or that similarity is it's a bit more of a stretch than the last one, of course. But sure, again, <laughs> and I'm not saying that I'm not saying that to be critical. It's just it, it's trying to find these similarities is is a challenge in and of itself. So um, yes, yeah, yeah, again. Just the fact that you've got both hero factions in in Star Trek: The Motion Picture and Star Wars are all you know coming. Uh, they they have to stop this galaxy uh, changing idea or weapon. Um, yeah, that it's it's not it's a stretch, but it isn't, I guess. Yeah, there's it's similar, but yet you're right. They're in scope. They're both a little different. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I mean, like, like again, going back to the whole Vedra thing. Yes, Vedra probably digitized a lot of stuff into its memory banks on its way to Earth, but it wasn't. It was never done in a malicious way. It was to fulfill the Voyager programming to learn it, all that is learnable and bring that knowledge back to the creator. That was the whole point of Vedra going home and then wanting to merge with the creator as well. You know, but I mean, again, things died or got destroyed as a in that process. So, yeah, that was a, that was a tough one to kind of <laughs> put together. It really was. Yeah. But, you know. All right. So moving on to the next similarity is both movies end through some sort of some forms of supernatural events, if you think about it. So the Death Star, yes, it was blown up. We saw it physically blow up. So what's really supernatural about that? But if you kind of piece it together and think about why it was destroyed, uh, if it was Obi-Wan encouraging Luke to use and trust the Force to destroy the Death Star, and it was Luke actually turning off his Nava computer and actually using the Force, trusting the Force, that allowed him to shoot the proton torpedoes into the reactor shaft, which destroyed the Death Star. So it wasn't based on technology, it was based on using the Force. If you think about, in the motion picture, V'ger actually isn't defeated. He actually evolves. It's basically the way it was kind of discussed at the very end of the the movie. Um, So like much of Star Trek, the solution to the dilemma came through a bunch of talk, a bunch of technobabble with Kirk, Spock, and Decker, just miraculously figuring out all of what V'ger's whole purpose was, basically. And Decker figuring out that if he keys in the final sequence to, so Voyager can transmit its data, it'll help for V'ger to join with the human being. So that's what leads to the melting of Decker and V'ger and the Ilea probe into that new life form that ends up going into a higher level plane of existence. 
So in Star Trek, you got the Force, and then in the motion picture, you got Deidre evolving. Right. Yeah, that and that's you know that is a very you know very cool comparison. I, I like how you were able to uh, you know look at the you know how how vastly different the Force is from you know, what happened at the end of Star Trek, the motion picture and find that commonality. Uh, it, it's again, you've, you, you put a lot of work and a lot of thought into these <laughs> comparisons. Uh, and um, I'm, the, I, I appreciate, you know, the, the amount of time that you spent on this. Uh, I just wanted to kind of address something with you and kind of propose a question to you about sure. the ending of the motion picture. Mm-hmm. Uh I'm not sure if you have. I know. I know you've dabbled dabbled a little bit into the the books of Star Trek, and of course, you know, uh, fans of Star Trek know that the books are never recognized officially as canon, uh, as Star Trek canon. But I came across something where uh, I, I saw that it's believed by a, you know several fans that Viger uh, and uh, sorry, Viger's merging with. Decker and the Ilea probe that that directly led to the creation of the Borg. Yeah, I've seen a lot of that over the years. Uh, it would certainly be an interesting thought. I mean, there's certainly you know the Borg are very exciting and entertaining and well developed. You know, so a lot it doesn't surprise me that people would want to kind of piece that together and kind of think of that. I mean, it's certainly certainly very possible. You know, uh, Vidra came from a planet of living machines, so right. of course it's very possible. Right, and then but, Spock. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Right. Uh, well, go ahead. Yeah, and then Spock, of course, has that line uh, where he's talking to Kirk that any show of resistance would be futile, and of course, you know, that's a, right. a, a very key uh, line of dialogue from the Borg in their speech before they assimilate is that resistance is futile. Right. Exactly. Now here's. One in canon reason why I would think that the Borg were not created by Viger. Because if you know, the Borg cannot function without their organic components. That was said in, obviously, in First Contact. So, in, in Viger and the Ilea probe considered carbon based units to not be true life forms. So, I don't think that Viger would necessarily merge, want to merge with carbon based units, but. Now that they had that carbon-based component, that piece of humanity through Decker, maybe that was possible. You yeah. never know. Yeah, absolutely. It, it gives a lot to think about. And I know that, um, again, we, we had just mentioned that the expanded literary universe of Star Trek, unlike Star Wars, is not considered canon. Uh, but th- this very concept had been explored in a series of novels that William Shatner himself wrote. Uh, you know, um, they, you know, the novels featured a Borg resurrected Captain Kirk, and uh, it it very much made that connection that the Borg were created from that merging of Decker, Viger, sure. and the Ilea probe. So, mm-hmm. um, I haven't read that that trilogy of books yet, but it seems mm-hmm. like it would be an interesting, uh, you know, idea to to explore, even though it's not canon, of course. Sure, exactly, absolutely. All, All right, right. What, so... what do you have next? The next one is, I believe, the uniting of the characters. So each movie brings the lead characters together through different circumstances, reasonings. So with A New Hope, it brings characters together who are strangers into one cohesive group to fight the threat to the galaxy and then sets, ends with setting up their future adventures. So you watch A New Hope. I, it was literally on TV an hour before we started recording. So it was actually really cool to see that, the, the ending. You see them standing there at the end after that ceremony of them getting the medals, and you know that that's not going to be like, oh, well, we're it, that's it, goodbye, we're going to leave each other. You know that that's where they're going to be, that's where their future lies, going into the future. Mm-hmm. It's very similar to that in the motion picture. Now, the motion picture is a little different in the fact that it reunites the core characters after the, 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 the TV series, their original five-year mission. But they come together again based on circumstances because obviously Vidra is seen as a threat to Earth and ultimately, I guess, in extension, the galaxy. And also at the very end of the motion picture, they don't go their separate ways again. They, they, just, they end up staying on the Enterprise and going back out on adventures, which I wish we would have gotten to see in a series or whatever, but that's beside the point. It, it it's just both movies show these people coming together and staying together. 
instead of splitting apart. So that was a similarity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, where, where, you know, episode four tells the story of the group coming together and then they would be together for years and years afterwards, you know, throughout the fall of the galactic empire, uh, you know, they, they united to take down the empire. And then eventually, uh, as we find out in the sequel trilogy, they had eventually went their separate ways. Luke, after his failure, uh, with Ben Solo, he distances himself from Leia and Han. And then eventually Leia and Han grow apart. Obviously, Leia goes back to being a general in the Resistance, uh, and Han goes back to his smuggling ways. Um, it's kind of, uh, it's essentially, it's Star Trek the motion picture in reverse. Yes, it sure is, absolutely. And, and it's just fascinating the way each group comes together, because you're right. You know, they stay together in A New Hope for years and years, and then the, the Star Trek crew, if you go between the motion picture and Star Trek Two. Obviously, they split up again at some point because so Spock ends up becoming a captain. Kirk's an admiral again in the future. The Enterprise becomes an academy training ship. You know, so, yeah, it's, it's, you're right. That there, it is how everything switched and reversed, and that's very fascinating. So, yeah, so that was another similarity I came up with. Um, the next one that I came up with is both movies seem to present some sort of psychic connections with the characters. So, for example, in A New Hope, we've already talked about the Force. We can't go and talk about Star Wars without the Force. So in A New Hope, they show Obi-Wan Kenobi discussing and showing Luke what the Force is. And Obi-Wan just very minimally just starting to teach Luke how to use the Force. And he uses it, obviously, to his advantage at the end of the movie to destroy the Death Star, like we had already talked about. Well, there's also a psychic kind of connection in the motion picture. Um, for some reason, Spock and Vidra have some sort of tele- telepathic connection across space, you know, and which is which actually kind of moves the story forward, um, which is, is kind of interesting. If you kind of look at it, it's very similar to when, let's say, when Alderaan was destroyed in A New Hope and Obi-Wan, even though he's nowhere near Alderaan, can feel the voices of the Alderaan people crying out through the force. Mm-hmm. It's very similar to Spock having that connection to Vidra and kind of knowing kind of like what Vidra's thoughts and motives are. Um, one little side note is I never could understand why Vidra's and it, it was Spock <laughs> of all individuals that he had this connection with. Um, I guess maybe because they were both trying to find some sort of connection to humanity. And of course, it was obvious for story purposes for, for that to happen. But I always wondered why Spock was the one that Vidra picked. Um, so, so what do you think about that connection? I, I think, again, I think you're spot on with that. It, it essentially, you know, what we have in Star Trek, the motion picture, we have, uh, you know, what we think is going to be a, uh, a threat that has to be destroyed, uh, you know, before it gets to earth become something entirely different once we establish that psychic connection once Viger and Spock have that connection it becomes a, a lot more that it opens up the story and it you know it, it isn't necessarily about death you know destruction uh that it becomes about resolving the conflict through nonviolent means rather than violent means and that's kind of the opposite of what happens in Star Wars a new hope where a an extreme act of violence uh, is what brings characters together and and opens up the galaxy to a different story uh, and a different uh, resolution. Um, do you kind of see where I'm going with this? I don't know. Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I I got you on that. All right. So let's see. The next one that I came up with is. Both movies have a core group of characters, and basically the the Trinity, I guess, if you want to call them that. That's what they were called by Harv Bennett when, with Star Trek II. So in A New Hope, it introduces many characters. So you've got Han, Luke, Leia, the, the droids, Chewbacca, Darth Vader, all the, a whole group of them. However, really the Trinity of that that movie and then going in through the original trilogy is Luke, Han and Leia it, it themselves. It's kind of their story. It's kind of like Chewbacca's kind of like the sidekick kind of along on the journey. And same thing with C3PO and R2D2. 
you know. So I also noticed that in the motion picture. Now, obviously, the relationship between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy didn't just form in that movie. They were it was already very well established in the original Star Trek series. So even though they, it, there wasn't a big focus on it in the motion picture, you can definitely tell that it's there, uh, especially when they're talking in the uh, I don't know what if it's a staff lounge or whatever right after Spock's arrival on the ship. Um, but it did reestablish that they are like kind of like the three main characters. And then you kind of had the co-stars kind of going along on the journey with them throughout the rest of the movie, mm-hmm. you know, you know, so that, that was just a, a basic thought. It's a simple thought, but it's just something I picked up on. No, no, you're absolutely right. I, I think that, uh, and again, uh, yes, you have that core group of characters. You've got, you have that trilogy, that Trinity of, of characters in both Star Trek and Star Wars. Uh, and where the similarities are there, there's also a pretty stark contrast as well. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the motion picture, Star Trek the motion picture assumes that we are already familiar with with Spock, Bones, and with, with Kirk. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't take, the movie doesn't take the time to introduce these characters to people who've never seen Star Trek. Uh, you know, we're already supposed to understand that, Kirk has this love affair with the Enterprise, and we're already supposed to understand the relationship dynamic between the three characters. How Bones and Spock are constantly, well, you know, they're, they're they are friends, but they're also, in a way, they're also frenemies. You know, yes. um, they they always butt heads, and then Kirk has to kind of be the uniting force that 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 that, that brings them back together. Because Bones and uh, and Spock are such uh, drastically different personalities, uh, Bones oh, yeah. is very much very emotional. He wears his heart on his sleeve, uh, mm-hmm. and Spock, you know, for the most part, Spock has you know buries his emotions. Uh, mm-hmm. and it's, it's always that cool contrast between the two. Um, yes, Star Wars, you know, is one of those movies that's instantly watchable by mm-hmm. anyone, whether you're a fan of Star Wars or not. It takes the time to introduce us to our main characters. You know, we have that setup with Luke on Tatooine. We have uh, the setup, you know, initially we get that perspective of the droids. And then we get the, uh, once the Empire breaches uh, Leia's uh, consularship, the the Tanta V4, we get that introduction within the first uh, act of the movie. We get that introduction of our characters. Um, Again, there's, you've got, while you've got the core group of characters, you've also got the 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 characters are so vastly different from one another as far as what we have to know about them going into the films. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, kind of sticking along with the character groups, we have the next similarity is both movies show a love of ships by its their respective captains. So you can tell from the very get-go when Han talks about the Millennium Falcon that he's very, very proud of that ship. He talks about when Luke asks, is it a fast ship or was it Luke or was it Obi-Wan? I'm actually drawing a blank on who it was. Uh, Yeah, it was Obi-Wan. Okay. Yes. Okay. Okay. And then he seemed kind of taken aback and was like, you never heard of the Millennium Falcon is the ship that made the Kessel run in less than 12 parsecs. You know, so there was that big sense of pride right from the start. Then they get to Docking Bay 94, and they start talking about um, uh, Luke refers to the ship as a piece of junk or hunk of junk. And he, once again, Han gets very defensive and talks about how fast he can get to a certain speed or, or whatever. So he's very, very proud of that ship. And you see it, it's that makes you get drawn into wanting to like the ship because Han's got such an appreciation for it. It's the same thing with Kirk and the Enterprise in the motion picture. Now, the introduction of the Enterprise in the motion picture is a lot different than it, than the introduction of the Millennium Falcon. The Falcon is just kind of like introduced. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the Enterprise, however, it gets what a eight minutes like flyover basically to show it off. Yeah, and absolutely. You, and you know, and which which makes sense because the Millennium Falcon is just being introduced. You know, the the Enterprise had ten years of history. 
with it. And it was completely refit and redesigned. So it was a great way to reintroduce the ship. A lot of people were bored by that scene, but I think it's wonderful. And I think it, it shows you, it sets up why Kirk goes to the lengths that he does to get his ship back in, in the movie. You know, especially the, the part where after the, the travel pod turns and faces the front of the ship and they had that big fanfare or whatever from Jerry Goldsmith and Kirk's like eyes are like wide and it looks like he's on the verge of crying basically, mm-hmm. you know, just the love that you see for that ship at, at that moment. It's just, it's just incredible. And I think that's what, that's something similar from both movies is that you see that love of the main ships in each one. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're, you're right. You're right on the money with, you know, while the, the scene, you know, the eight minute introduction to the enterprise uh, is a bit long, you know, and I'm kind of in the camp where it was a little too long. Uh, you know, you could have shortened it. You could have made potentially made the uh, the pod that took Scotty and and Kirk to uh, the Enterprise a little bit uh, faster, or maybe not spent as much time uh, with the the maneuvering of the pod once it you know to to make its way into uh, the docking bay of the Enterprise. But you're right on. You know, you're right on. You know. Um, Han Solo loves his ship and all the modifications that he made to it to make it his own, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's very similar in a way to how, uh, you know, Kirk looks at the Enterprise. But the, the difference between how, you know, Kirk is in love with the Enterprise and he will never love anyone or anything else as much as he loves the Enterprise. Uh, that's why he never got married. That's why, you know, he never has uh, relationships with other human beings, uh, you know, in, in a romantic uh, sense. He has friendships, but not romantic mm-hmm. relationships because his love is the ship. Han loves his ship, but obviously he loves Leia more. Uh, you know, he has, he he knows, he realizes that the connection between uh, himself and his ship is not as is strong, but it's not as strong as the love he has for Leia. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, so it's, a, it's a pretty cool contrast. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I never thought of it that way. That basically Kirk's wife was essentially the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, even in the series, he referred to it as a beautiful lady, and we love her. You know, so you're right. I think that's you're right. That's where his heart always belongs on that ship. Very good. All right, so now the last three similarities that I have actually go away basically from the character and the story and focus more on like things that like I guess the product of it, I guess you could say. So the next thing I would say is that both of them have amazing model work and special effects. And that starts definitely with A New Hope. Um, before A New Hope came out, when they were tra- talking about Star Trek movies, when they were talking about the God thing and they were talking about Planet of the Titans, they were talking about modest budgets, three to five million dollars. You know, so it would have been a very low budget kind of film. Well, when Star Wars A New Hope came out, that all changed because, I mean, look at look at the effects from that movie. I mean, they're, they're revolutionary. They're pioneering. I mean, the, the, the level of detail, the models, and, and just the way that they fly, they don't look like they're models on strings being flown around like puppets. Mm-hmm. I mean, they really did an amazing amount of work with the, 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 the camera work. I just I don't know how else to describe it. It's just uh, it's one of the stop-motion camera, I think, is what I was looking yes. for. Yes, You know, and, and just the kind of effects. I mean, you just didn't see anything in the movies b- before that, you know, and because of that, they're – it set that precedent for future special effects movies. So do you think Paramount was going to make a movie that, that kind of made the show, make the movie look like it did in the TV series back in the sixties? That wouldn't have, it wouldn't have gone over well, you know? So that's why Star Trek, the motion picture used so much of its budget. And the budget actually ballooned to $44 million because a lot of it, because of these special effects. I mean, so, I mean, just some of the stuff that they did in the motion picture just is just, Amazing. Just even though it's it's long, what we just talked about, but the Enterprise being in that dry dock is just stunning. Even forty years later, just it's just amazing how good that looks. They they tried to make they wanted to make sure they had their version of Star Wars. They did definitely with the effects. The story maybe not so much the pacing, but yeah, definitely the models and special effects. And just a little side note for me, 
I personally feel that the model work in all of these movies look much better than anything CGI can create. Absolutely. There's, I mean, there's a lot to be said about practical models rather than using yes. CGI to create something. It'll never be the same. Uh, and there's always going to be it, it, what, you know, what uh, they refer to as the uncanny valley, you know, where your eyes are going to essentially be, your eyes and your brain are going to be tricked by you know, to a point by CGI, but they're never going to replace, uh, you know, what can be created with, you know, with physical components. You know, you kind of mentioned how both movies have amazing model work. Again, yeah, you know, I had I, I had mentioned during the, the your very, you know, the very beginning of our discussion how the model work on the Birds of Prey was very much inspired by Star Wars. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it, it was rough. Uh, it was very. It wasn't. It wasn't smooth lines and very. It wasn't. It looked that you know. You could tell that the the Klingons were you know were more about making their ships practical uh, mm-hmm. rather than making them things of beauty. The you know how the the Klingon birds of prey look, and then after that scene, we're introduced event you know to the Enterprise, and and how you know you've got that. You've got that stark contrast between the utilitarian look and feel of the Klingon birds of prey and how those ships are basically they're they're war machines. So they don't care about pretty lines and smooth surfaces like the the Enterprise does. Um, you know, the Enterprise has those uh, symmetrical warp nacelles and it has that perfect saucer section uh, where, you know, then you kind of compare that to the look of the Millennium Falcon and how that the, the Millennium Falcon is very asymmetrical. You know, you've mm-hmm. got the cockpit offset from the, the saucer section of the Millennium Falcon. You've got the, the radar dish on the Falcon that that breaks those clean lines and, and provides that, that a huge contrast between uh, you know the main ships of our of the, each respective movie. Um, the you know the Klingon birds of prey are much more in line with the look of the Millennium Falcon uh, than than the Enterprise is, and you know that's a, a big part of that. You know also is how star trek is always an idealized version of the of humanity uh so everything looks futuristic everything looks clean because it's meant to be an ideal uh you know a, a look forward into the future of what the human race can accomplish where mm-hmm. star trek or sorry where star wars it takes place a long time ago in a galaxy far far away the um Star Wars and its galaxy feels much more lived in it, and and in, in a way, it's more vibrant than the motion picture. Right, absolutely, and you know, and also you think about it with the, with Star Wars. I mean, it's during a time of tyranny that's going on, so a lot of things are going to look jumbly and and pieced together because just by they're scrapping by with getting whatever supplies they can get to fight against the Empire. You know, so it fit that that trilogy very well. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to uh, you want to introduce our next similarity? Both movies have iconic soundtracks. So obviously, John Williams created the soundtracks for A New Hope and basically for the whole Skywalker saga. At this point, he created unique themes for many of the characters for Luke, for Leia. Uh, eventually, they came on with the the Empire had an, its Imperial March. Um, and like I said earlier in our uh, discussion here, the, the opening fanfare immediately draws viewers into the movie and establishes the pace. Well, the motion picture does something very similar. The music is, is a little bit maybe slower, a little more gentle than it is in, in A New Hope. But I mean, you do one thing that I think is really neat. And I used to hate it because I thought it was boring, was Ilea's theme. Um, but I think what actually it does is it sets the love relationship between Decker and Ilea, but also kind of has like a feeling of like what the grandness of space is about and, and kind of what the whole topic of the motion picture is about, that sense of wonder. Um, as it said in one of the TV spots for the motion picture, um, it'll – oh, I just had it in my head. Now it, it disappeared. It will startle your senses, I think, is what they said. Really, it does. It, it kind of makes you have like this kind of sense of wonder. And it, the Ilea theme is used in a lot of the trailers for for the movie, um, especially the TV spots. Mm-hmm. Um, so what about you? What do you think about the soundtracks? 
I think, again, like you said, they're both iconic in their own way. You know, uh, John Williams certainly has, you know, and Jerry Goldsmith both have their main fanfare, their main theme that introduces the movie. Uh, but, and, but yeah, like you said, Ilea is really the only character in Star Trek The Motion Picture that gets a dedicated theme. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you, you, you kind of, you know, you have both movies that had their iconic themes that introduced the movie, uh, but the, again, the similarities kind of end there. John Williams creates theme songs for so many of the characters. He has a theme for the Force. He has a theme for the binary sunsets on Tatooine, um, which again, eventually the binary sunset music becomes the Force theme. Mm-hmm. Um, but at, at the time of Star Wars uh, Episode Four, there were two different songs. One was the Force theme, and then Binary Sunsets. Uh, again, mm-hmm. that's just the evolution of things. But yeah, like in, in Star Trek: The Motion Picture, the only character that really gets a theme is Ilea. Mm-hmm. Both movies feature such good music, and it's just the way that they're used in each film is different. Exactly, exactly. And um, just as a side note with the motion picture real quick, um, you were talking earlier about how the motion picture theme is used for Next Generation. Well, it also introduces the Klingon Imperial, I guess if you want to call it the Imperial March, just the Klingon theme. You know, so it established something very important, just like uh, A New Hope establishes the themes that are going to continue on for the motion picture. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to make our list to have 10 similarities. This one I really stretched on, and you're probably going to laugh at me when I bring this stuff up. Here goes. So they both clearly look like they're products of the 1970s, specifically 1970 sci-fi. So if you look at the costumes in both Star Wars A New Hope and in the motion picture, the colors are very muted. you got a lot of like whites or like light blues or grays. Um, some tan kind of stuff. Um, it's, the, it's not really colorful and, and bubbly. Like, think about the, the Phantom Menace in, uh, from 1999. Those had some really bright colors to them. And then as you move on into the movie franchise, and they move into those maroon-colored military-looking uniforms. I mean, the motion picture has some very flat, dull kind of colors, I guess you could yeah. kind of say. You know, and... Uh, so also I noticed that it's not so much in A New Hope, but in the motion picture, they have – if you look at a lot of the, the 23rd century humans in like the tram station, look at some of the, the, the clothes that they're wearing. They're very like robe kind of like very flowy kind of minimalistic kind of stuff. Now you don't see a whole lot of that in, ba- or in, a, in A New Hope, but if you look at sci-fi that was p- depicted in the 1970s, Battlestar Galactica – Logan's Run, um, some other post-apocalyptic kind of movies. Um, And then if you look at uh, some of the projects that Gene Roddenberry created, I don't know if you're familiar with Genesis 2, Planet Earth, and Strange New Worlds. Um, But a lot of those future humans have that same kind of roby, flowy, minimalistic kind of look to it, um, which is very interesting to me. And also, this is just, this is weird and stupid probably, but very 1970s with the 70s porn stashes. You see a couple people here and there in the set, in both the New Hope and in the motion picture with those porn stashes. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, it dates. It makes it look very 70s. So that was my stretch for number 10 of the similarities. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's a bit of a stretch, but um, <laughs> the fact that you mentioned the mustaches. Uh, I've, I've just got this mental image now of Biggs uh, from A New Hope, Luke's friend yeah. Biggs, and that mustache. That's Yeah, yeah it's very, very 1970s. And Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I, I don't know where that came from, but That's it just great. popped in my head. It. And for me, it's in the motion picture when you see Spock uh, doing the uh, Vulcan, uh, what is it, the neck pinch, Vulcan neck pinch on that guy in the uh, spacesuit room, Yep. Um, the airlock. That's yeah. what I was thinking about. Yes, absolutely. Yep, you yeah. got it. So, yeah, that, that's uh, that's uh, that's the best we could come up with as far as <laughs> uh, a tenth point. You can kind of yes. tell we're really stretching at this point, but you know, for the sake of having a top ten list, we got there. Yes, I wasn't sure if we were going to make it to ten. I thought maybe four. I really yeah. thought it was going to happen. Yeah, but 
thanks again, Chris, for that. That mm -hmm. um, your you know the, the amount of effort that you put into this was incredible. Uh, I enjoyed our discussion once again, as I always do. Uh, I I think that's going to wrap us up for now for this episode. Yes. Um, as far as our feature discussion is concerned. Uh, the last thing I just want to bring up is we got uh, some feedback on our last episode and in our interview with Landry Walker. Uh, so on Twitter, a friend of mine, Chris, uh, mm -hmm. who goes by Are You Serious Chris on Twitter, uh, he said kudos to Logs and Light Pod for the fantastic interview with Landry Q. Walker. Uh, he said he goes on to say, great insight and the realization that no matter how hard I try, I will never go to a birthday party as cool as the one Landry went to. <laughs> That's great. So, hey, uh, thanks, uh, Chris, for you know for you. Uh, for responding and uh, you know giving us the kudos on the episode. We really appreciate it, and we hope you like this one as well. All right. All right. That's going to do it for us for episode six of Captain's Logs and Lightsabers. Thank you for listening, and uh, we hope you look forward to our next discussion, whatever it may be. The theme music for our show was composed for us by Chip Kramer. You can find him by searching Chip Kramer on SoundCloud. Uh, there also will be a link to his SoundCloud profile in the show notes for this episode. If you'd like to reach out to the show on Twitter, you can find us at Logs and Lightsabers Pod, all spelled out. If you go on Facebook, search for Logs and Lightsabers Pod. Or if you want to email the show, you can reach us at logslightsaberspod at gmail.com. If you'd like to reach out to me personally, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook by searching at Just a Disney Geek. How about you, Chris? You can find me on Twitter. Just go to Twitter, type in at Chris Stow, S T O U G H 1. You can also find me on Twitter and YouTube. I have a YouTube channel called Pittsburgh's Trek Chat. On Twitter, you can go to at PGH Trek Chat. You'll find me there. On YouTube, just type in Pittsburgh's Trek Chat. That'll take you directly to my channel. My email that you can use also to get in touch with me is Christopher Stow, S-T-O-U-G-H-L-S-W at gmail.com. Great. And then also, if you'd like to connect with Geek News Now, the uh, the network on which you found this podcast, you can reach out to them on Twitter at GNN underscore home, Facebook, just search for Geek News Now. Or if you'd like to connect with GNN on their website, it's www.geeknewsnow.net. We'd appreciate any and all feedback that you're willing to provide. Just reach out to us on any of those social network contact points and tell us what you think, whether that's suggestions for new episodes, what you liked about an episode, or what we can improve upon. We want to hear it. If you're an Apple Podcast user, our show and the entire GNN network would appreciate a five-star rating and review. But it really is the best way to help our show reach more listeners and make us more visible to others. If you're not an Apple Podcast user, you can also help the show by subscribing to the feed which will make sure you never miss an episode of this or any other show on the network. In exchange for your feedback and reviews, we would like to offer you some discounts from a couple partnerships that Geek News Now has. For the pen and paper RPG fans, we have a great offer from Metallic Dice Games. You can use the code GNN to take 10% off your entire order, including items that are already on sale. Go to MetallicDiceGames.com and shop for your RPG gaming needs. Secondly, if you have extra room in your closet or drawers for more geeky t-shirts, Ripped Apparel is offering 10% off on their site, except for the daily shirts. That promo code is GNN10. Their website is riptapparel.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Captain's Logs and Lightsabers. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Live long and prosper, everyone. <laughs>